If you would, please turn in your Bibles over to James chapter 1. We'll just be looking at two verses, verses 14 and 15. As it's been said already this morning, today is January the 1st, 2023. Can you believe it? It's 23 already? It's a new year. And many of you are making New Year's resolutions. You're setting goals for the new year, things that you want to accomplish. And usually you set goals and you look at your life and it's all about self-examination. What do I want to improve this year? What do I want to do better than I did last year? How can I change as a person? And this is a good thing to do. If you don't make resolutions, you ought to try. And if you need some help, I, I can help you out this morning. I have a resolution for all of us for 2023. My resolution for this year, for 2023, we will make significant advances in overcoming the sin that plagues each of our lives. That, that one or maybe the several particular sins that you see in your life right now, that are a problem today in January of 2023, you resolve that by January of 2024, by God's grace, you will no longer have a significant struggle with that sin. Some of you like the sound of that. Some of you are like, amen, let's do this. And then others, I say that, and the first thing that comes to your mind is despair and hopelessness. Because you've been down that road before. You fought that battle a couple of times. And every time you go back to fight that sin, it just comes back at you. And it's like a bad pair of sunglasses. You just can't get rid of it. And it doesn't matter what you do. And you've reached the point of hopelessness. There's just no way I'm going to get free of this sin. I'm never going to get past this. And what I've found is that most times when people are struggling with sin like that, it's not because they are intentionally wanting to hold on to the sin. It's because they simply don't understand how to fight or they don't understand why they are tempted and why they fall into the sin to begin with. One common misconception is that sin is some singular event. Sin is kind of like tripping over your shoelaces or stepping on one of the kid's Legos while barefoot. It's just something that happens. It happens from outside of you. It's this instantaneous event that sneaks up behind you, jumps out of the bushes, and grabs you. And there's really nothing you can do about it. And because we have this misunderstanding about the source and the nature of temptation and sin, we never actually get to deal with the real problem. And because we never deal with the real problem, we never actually solve the sin. We never actually find a way to get, re get free of it. So we remain stuck in our sin. This morning, James is going to help us correct that misunderstanding. He's going to give us a right view of sin, a right view of temptation. He's going to show us that sin is not an isolated event. Sin is a process. Every time you sin, you go through a process. It's a series of steps that every sinner progresses through each and every time they sin. Sometimes this process takes hours or days or weeks. And sometimes the process goes by in an instant. And it goes by in an instant because you are so practiced and you have a habit of going through this process. And it's real easy to, for you to go from temptation right into sin in a moment. In James 1, 14 and 15, he gives us the five-step process of sinning. It's a five-step process. These are the five steps you go through each time you sin. Let's look at the very first step of the process. 
First step in the process of sinning, you are tempted by your desire. The first step in the process of sin, anytime you sin, is temptation. Every sin begins with temptation. And there are two possible sources of temptation. The first one is external. That is to say, you're tempted by things outside of you. You're tempted by other people. Satan, in Matthew 4, used external temptation on Jesus. He offered Jesus things that are good, like food. And he said, I'll satisfy your desire for food if you'll just sin. That's external temptation. Jesus faced that temptation, and he did not sin in any way, shape, or form. Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, just without sin. Jesus faced external temptation, but he never sinned in that temptation. The sin in that situation, when you go to Matthew 4, the sin there was committed by Satan. He was the one trying to entice someone else to sin. And Jesus, being the recipient of that, didn't sin. To merely be exposed to external temptation, for me to hold sin out in front of you and dangle it in front of you, is not sin to you. It's sin for me. But James here in James 1, 14 and 15 is not talking about external temptation. He's talking about internal temptation. Let's look at James 1, verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desires. Each one is tempted in the sense that he is on the verge of sinning. Have you ever gotten there? You're right on the line and you're about to cross over. That's when you're tempted. And you can reach the verge of sinning. You can get to the point of temptation without ever having faced external temptation. Without anyone coming to you and saying, hey, you need to do this. The temptation comes from within. He says here, it is by his own lusts, you might say, by his own desires. When you are tempted, when you are on the verge of sinning, it is not someone else that is tempting you. You are tempted because of your own desires, and you have specific desires, specific things that tempt you, specific things that you want that are temptations. And the phrase, by his own desire or by his own lust, is actually at the start of the Greek sentence. It makes it emphatic. He's emphasizing, you do not sin because of other people. When you fall into sin, you can't point to someone else and say, I sinned because so-and-so did this. You can't say, well, you know, like old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Do you notice how James is talking about sin here? He's talking about temptation, and in James 1, he doesn't mention Satan. He doesn't mention the enemy. Satan isn't mentioned until James chapter 4 in verse 7 when he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When he's talking about temptation, he focuses only on you. And then others will say, well, you know, I believe in the sovereignty of God. God has put me in this situation. It's God that's tempting me. It's pretty brave. But that doesn't work either. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. That means your temptation is no worse than anybody else's. 
But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure. God doesn't tempt you. God is the one who provides a way out of temptation. God is the one who rescues you from temptation. And if you don't believe me, look back, James 1 verse 13, the verse right before our passage. James 1 verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Let no one say, this is an emphatic command, do not say this at all for any reason. I am being tempted by God. That preposition there, by God, refers to God at a distance. This would be like saying, well, God didn't directly cause me to sin, but he kind of put things in my path and tried to entice me second-handedly into sin. James says, no, God is not involved in your temptation at all. He has no part in your sin. And then he gives two reasons. For God cannot be tempted by evil. That is to say, God has no attraction, no desire for sin at all. He doesn't want sin in you or in me or in anyone else. And he himself does not tempt anyone. There is not a single person in this world who has ever been tempted by God. And you will never be tempted by God. You and I sin because of our own lust, our own desires. If I were to translate verse 13, this isn't as good English as the LSB uses, but I would translate it, but each one is tempted by his own lusts his own desire. The problem here is your desire. You desire the sin or you desire the perceived benefits of sinning. I'm going to get something by sinning. That's why the battle with sin is so hard. Because you're fighting your own desires. You're fighting the things that you want. If you didn't want it, it wouldn't be hard. Your Bible might say you are tempted by your lusts, the Greek word here, epithumia, could be translated lust or desire. And it can refer to good desires. We oftentimes think of lust as referring to like sexual sin. This can refer to good desires. Three times in the New Testament, it refers to a good desire. Philippians 1, 23, Paul desired to depart and to be with the Lord. Luke twenty two fifteen, 15, Jesus desired to eat the Passover with his disciples. 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, Paul had a great desire to see the Thessalonians. Same word is used, describing the desire for something that is good. That's only three times in the New Testament this word describes something that is good. Thirty-five times, epithumia, desire, lust, refers to the desire for something that is sinful. I'm going to break some rules of preaching here. They're not written on the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to break some rules. I'm going to give you a list, and I'm going to give this kind of rapid fire to you so I don't put anyone to sleep. But I want you to hear how the Bible uses this term, desire or lust, so you understand what it is inside of you that's tempting you. Mark 4, verse 19, Jesus said, The desire for other things choke out the Word of God. Ephesians 4, verse 22, Paul speaks of deceptive desires. Colossians 3, 5, sexual sin comes from evil desire. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Paul tells young Timothy, flee youthful lust. 2 Timothy 4, 3, false teachers tickle your ears by appealing to your desire. 1 Peter 2, 11, fleshly lust wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 1, 14, the former lust 
refers to the desires of your unconverted life before you were a Christian. 2 Peter 2 verse 10 talks of corrupt desires. Titus 2 verse 12, he says, The grace of God has appeared teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire, desires for the world. In Galatians 5 verse 24, Paul says, You are to crucify your desires. Your desires for sin, your desires for the world. These desires are not to be embraced. Pope Francis a couple years ago said, you can be a, a priest can have homosexual desire as long as he doesn't act on it. You know what he just said? The priests of the Catholic Church are permitted to be Pharisees. Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. All clean and sparkly on the outside, but full of all wickedness on the inside. To embrace and to desire and to love sin is sin. And it is your sinful desire, your desire for sin, that tempts you. Because if there is no desire for sin, if you have no desire in your heart for it, then there is really no temptation to you. Let me give you an illustration. Everyone in the room has a desire for food. Yes, it's getting closer to lunch. If you were to come to me with a bowl of Brussels sprouts, I do not like Brussels sprouts. They make me nauseous. And there's this big bowl of Brussels sprouts, and you come to me, and you put that bowl of Brussels sprouts in front of me, and you hand me a fork, and you say, Frank, you're going to love these Brussels sprouts. They're so nutritious. They, and you go through all the nutrition, nutritional details on how these Brussels sprouts are going to be so good for me to eat. Do you know I am not going to be tempted at all? You know why I'm not going to be tempted? Because I have absolutely no desire to eat Brussels sprouts. Now, if you change the food a little bit, let's say you put some ice cream and some hot fudge in there, and then some killjoy walks up and tells me, Frank, you know, you really shouldn't eat that. It's full of refined sugars. It's got a whole bunch of fat and calories in it. It's not good for you. You know, he's just talking to the wind. I'll ignore what's good for me because I want to satisfy my desire. And so will you. Every time you sin, you ignore what's good for you so you can satisfy your sinful desire. Your heart, think of it this way, your heart is a garden. If you take a flower pot full of soil and you put it in the closet and then you pour water in it, will anything grow? No. You'll just have a, a bowl of mud. Your heart is a garden, and in that flower pot, there are seeds of sinful desire. External temptation is the water that makes those seeds grow and sprout and come out. If there is no desire in the heart, there is no real temptation that affects you. The temptation has no power. It remains external and powerless. Well, then someone will say, well, doesn't that mean Satan can't do anything to me? Satan's powerless. No, he's not. He can't give you a desire. He can't change your desire. But you know what he can do? He's had 6,000 years of practice of figuring out what your desires are and offering you what your heart already wants. He knows exactly how to draw out those sinful desires. And once he's drawn them out, all he has to do is step back and watch. Because your sinful heart will take over. And to desire what is sinful, it is sin. 
It is sin. How can I prove that? Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To look and to lust is sin. You haven't physically done anything, but the lust in your heart is sinful. You love what God hates. The source of your temptation is not the other person. It's you. It's your desires. The first step in the process of sinning is you are tempted by your desires. And once tempted, once temptation has taken effect, you move on to the second step. Second step, you are deceived by your desire. You are deceived by your desire. Look at verse 14 again. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Carried away and enticed. These are two participles that explain what your desires do when you are tempted. You are tempted when your lust, when your desires carry you away. The word here refers to dragging off. It was used to describe Paul being dragged out of the temple. It could also be used to refer to someone uh, drawing you away and encouraging you to move away. And there is a sense of violence to it. There is a sense in this word that the person does not want to move. And there's a coercion and a violence to it. This term is also used to describe fishing and hunting. In that sense, it describes luring an animal out of their den, out of their place of protection. How do you get them to come out? Well, you attract the animal. You attract them by offering them something that they want, called bait. And the animal sees the bait and says, ooh, that'll satisfy my desire. And the animal leaves what it knows is good for something that it believes is better. It leaves the security and the shelter of its den to go out and satisfy its desire. That's the idea of being drawn away or carried away. You are being pulled away from what is good. Here, the term does not refer to an animal. It refers to you. Your desires draw you away from the things of God. They draw you away from righteousness and holiness. They draw you away from loving Christ. They draw you away from prayer and the spiritual disciplines and reading your Bible. And they offer you something that appears to be better than the shelter of godliness that appears to be better than Christ. And that's where the deception comes in. Look at verse 14 again. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. Entice here is also a fishing term. You might translate it this way, to be baited and hooked. When you go fishing, do you stand by the lake and shout out to the fish? Come here, fish. They won't listen to you. You get some bait You put the bait on a hook, and you throw the bait in the water. The bait is to disguise the hook. Because you want the fish to believe that he's about to get a free meal. He's about to satisfy his desire for food. And it would be worth his time to go over there and take a bite of that bait. But what he doesn't realize is that you are deceiving him. That bait is there primarily for the hook. He's out for his next meal. He doesn't realize he's out to be your next meal. That's what the hook is for. 
Your desires convince you that the bait is good, that the sin is good, that it would be better for you to leave godliness, to leave righteousness, and run after sin. And of course, your heart doesn't tell you, oh, go ahead and be a, be a sinner your whole life. What your heart will tell you is, it's okay to do it this one time. Just tell this little white lie this one time. The benefits are so much better than the cost. Nobody will find out. It'll be okay. You need some comfort? Go ahead. Turn on something on the internet that you shouldn't be watching. That'll give you the comfort you need this one time. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's not a big deal. Anybody had their heart say this to them before? That is the language of a deceived heart that has been deceived by its own desires, that has been convinced that its desires are better than godliness, that sin is good. There's an excellent illustration of this deception. It's in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to go back there, Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because you know the whole story. This is the story of Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. God gives them very clear instructions. Do not eat of that one tree. You can eat from any other tree in the garden. Don't eat from that one. Eve starts talking to a serpent. The serpent offers her external temptation. Genesis 3 verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Is that true? Was that tree really good for food? Did God say, you can eat of this tree and it will satisfy your hunger and it will give nutrition and energy to your body? Is that what he said about that tree? No, he said, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. That tree is poison. It's not good for food. Genesis 3, 6 again. She saw it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Do you hear her desire? I want to be wise. I want to be like God. And the way I can be wise is by disobeying God, eating of this tree, and I'll get what I want. Disobeying God never is evidence of how wise you are. Sin will never make you wise. In fact, wisdom literature says that the wise man always obeys God. It is the fool that disobeys God. It is the fool that follows after his desires, seeking what he wants, and sinning in the process. That's the action of a fool. Now, I want you to think about this. She was deceived like this before the fall. She was deceived like this before she had a sinful nature. If her heart before the fall could be that deceived by her desires, how much more will your sinful desires deceive you? How much more will your desires make you believe that sin is good? Sin is never good. Disobeying God is never the answer. And then, once you've been tempted... Once you've been baited and hooked and deceived by your desires, you go to the third step. You plan to satisfy your desires. You plan to satisfy your desires. This is in verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. James begins a new illustration. He walks away from the hunting, fishing terms, and he moves into an illustration of conception and giving birth. Notice he says, when lust has conceived. 
Conceived here means exactly what you think it means. It refers to conceiving a child in the womb. It's used throughout the birth narratives to describe not only the conception of John the Baptist, but it's also used to describe the conception of Jesus. But here in James 1, it's obviously not referring to a woman conceiving a child. This is a metaphor. It's being used metaphorically to describe lust becoming pregnant. It doesn't describe how lust becomes pregnant. It just describes that lust is pregnant. It describes the state of pregnancy. That is to say, it's not telling us how she became pregnant, but that she is carrying a child in her womb. Follow me? This is kind of strange because he's talking about lust being pregnant, and in our mind that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How is lust pregnant? But I think the Old Testament provides some helpful information. When they translated the Hebrew text into Greek, they used the same word in several different places in the Old Testament. And I want to take you to them. If you'll turn over to Job 15, we're going to do Job, Psalms, and then Isaiah. Job 15, he makes a statement here that is very interesting. Job 15, verse 35, he says, They conceive trouble. There's our word, conceive. They conceive trouble and give birth to wickedness and their belly prepares deception. Now, if you have the NASB, your NASB will finish that last part, and their mind prepares deception. That's not the NASB changing the text. That's them telling you what the metaphor is trying to explain. They conceive trouble. That is to say, they have trouble forming in their head and in their mind. They conceive trouble, and it gives birth. What comes out is wickedness. Their belly here, their belly prepares deception. That pictures the mind acting as a womb, preparing a child. The mind planning and purposing evil. To conceive evil is to think on and to plan evil. Go over to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, he has another statement. The same word is used. Psalm 7, verse 14. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. There again, we have the idea of conception and giving birth. He conceives mischief. His mind is contemplating how to bring about mischief and evil. And when the conception is complete, then comes birth, and what is born is mischief and evil. One more. Isaiah 59, verse 4. Isaiah 59, verse 4. This is the last one. No one calls in righteousness, and no one seeks justice and truth. They trust in confusion and speak worthlessness. Here it is. They conceive trouble and give birth to wickedness. They conceive, they plan trouble. And their plans that are internal eventually are birthed. They come out. They come out in wickedness. One person translated this, they go around pregnant with evil. A woman who is pregnant has her womb filled with a child. Lust that is conceived is filled with sin, with evil. Conceiving here is a common way of describing someone who is planning and purposing. Back in James, when James says, lust conceives sin, he's saying that when we're tempted and deceived by our desires, 
we then begin planning how to fulfill and satisfy my desire. How can I make myself, how can I give myself the satisfaction that I think I deserve, that I think I need? How can I bring my desires to pass? And so you start scheming and planning. Remember the story of Amnon and Tamar? Anybody remember that story? This is a great illustration. It's in 2 Samuel verse th- chapter 13. It's a great illustration. Amnon had a half-sister that he was uh, infatuated with. 2 Samuel 13 verse 2, Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. He was obsessed with her, driven by his desires, and he couldn't satisfy his desires. And so he became frustrated and annoyed and angry. He was so upset about this, he made himself sick because he couldn't get what he wanted. That is until his, um, another guy named Jonadab shows up. And it actually says Jonadab was a friend. 2 Samuel 13 verse 4 says Jonadab was shrewd, very shrewd. This was a very smart guy. He was cunning. He was crafty. And he goes to Amnon. Here's Amnon and is upset. He can't satisfy his desire with Tamar. And so Jonadab does what every good friend does. Not tell him to repent of a sinful desire. No, he's a different kind of friend. He tells him, oh, you have a desire you want fulfilled? I got a plan for you. 2 Samuel 13, verse 5, Jonadab then said to him, that would be Amnon, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill when your father comes to see you. Say to him, please, let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Amnon follows the advice. He follows the plan. And then he sins against Tamar in a horrible way. Jonadab was the man with plan. Jonadab was the guy who gave him the plan of how he could fulfill his desires. How he could satisfy his desires. And if we're honest, we are all Jonadabs. Because we all spend time trying to figure out how I can fulfill my desires. When James says, when lust has conceived, that's what this picture's planning to fulfill my sinful desires. This could be planning outright sin. I'm just going to go sin. I'm going to satisfy my desires. And the plan here is how do I not get in trouble for it? But oftentimes, Christians get to this point, and the goal is not to sin. The goal is how can I satisfy my desire without crossing the line into sin? How can I get as close to sin as possible without going over the line? This is lust conceiving. This is making a plan to satisfy your desires. This is what Paul expressly forbids in Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Make no provision. Literally, make no plan to satisfy the flesh. Don't make a plan on how you're going to desire, how you're going to fulfill your desires. What you should be planning is how are you going to repent of your desires and get rid of them? Because trying to get as close to sin as possible without sinning is a fool's errand. It's a foolish thing to do. It's playing with fire. There's a really interesting passage in Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, Solomon's telling his young son to avoid the adulterous woman. 
and he says, stay far away from her. And he actually uses the illustration of fire. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. The moment you start planning on how you're going to satisfy your desires, you are headed for trouble. Because that only has one result. If you just think about the metaphor of conception, when a woman conceives, what's going to happen nine months later? A baby will be born. What has been conceived in the womb will come out. When you conceive evil in your heart, when you devise how you're going to satisfy your sinful desires, that will come out. It will come out in behavior. It will come out in action. If you sit there and dwell on what someone else did to you and how mean they've been to you and how they've hurt you and they've sinned against you, and it might be true, they may have, but if you sit there and dwell on it for day after day after day after day, do you really think you're going to be able to go over and have a conversation with them without them knowing you're angry at them? Do you really think you're going to be able to hide the bitterness and resentment? If a young man sits at home and just daydreams and fantasizes about sexual things, do you think he's really going to be able to avoid sinning? That brings us to the fourth step in the process of sinning. The fourth step. You act sinfully. It's the natural and logical conclusion. When you harbor and devise plans on how to satisfy your sinful desires, the only logical conclusion is that you will act in a sinful way. Look at James 1, verse 15 again. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. What resides in the womb of your heart will come out into the world. Jesus described your heart as a treasury. Matthew 12, verse 35, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. Notice good men have treasure in their heart that is good, and they bring out of their treasury what is good. Evil men have a treasury filled with what is evil, and what comes out of them is evil. And notice what comes out of your heart defines what you are. It doesn't say good men have evil hearts. It doesn't say good men harbor evil thoughts. It says good men have evil, have, wow, good men have good things in their heart and that's what comes out. But if you harbor sin in your heart, it will only produce sinful behavior. Matthew 7, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile a man. If your battle with sin focuses only on the external, if your battle with sin is nothing more than trying to change your behavior, you are losing your battle with sin. That's why you're in despair. You're focusing on the wrong place. You need to deal with the root of your sin. You need to deal with the desires of your heart. Where it all begins. Where the temptation began. And I have three simple ways you can do this. Some application here for you. How do you deal with the desires of your heart? First, be vigilant. Be vigilant. That is to say, be observant. 
Notice what's going through your head. What are you thinking on, dwelling on? When you're tempted, when you're on the verge of sinning, ask yourself a question. What is it that I want? What is this sin going to do for me? What is it going to give me? What is it that I want so badly that I'm willing to offend God? Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You need to watch out what you're desiring and thinking on and dwelling on. Be on guard for sinful thoughts. And when they show up, when sinful desires show up, get rid of them. Repent of them. Turn from them. Because the longer they stick around, the more powerful they become. That's the first one. Be vigilant. Second, fill your heart with thoughts of Christ in His Word. Fill your heart with thoughts of Christ and His Word. Um, have you ever heard the saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure? It's really true. And here, it's really true. Because you can't just get rid of sinful desires. You hear people say, well, I've been praying that the Lord would take away my desires. That's not how it works. That's not a biblical prayer. The way you get rid of sinful desires is by overwhelming them with a desire for what is good. The best way to avoid being tempted and carried away and enticed by sinful desires is to crowd them out with thoughts and desire for Christ. Expand your love for Christ. Meditate on his work. Think about what Christ did for you in the gospel. Think about the promises of Christ. Think about what he saved you from. Go and read the word. Don't read the word just so you can fulfill your Bible plan. Read the word so you can love Jesus more. Get to know the person. Memorize scripture. Memorize it until it's coming out of your ears. Until when you speak, it just flows out of you. Fill the treasure house of your heart with Christ. Let the person of Christ satisfy you. Let me give you an illustration. This isn't mine, but I've adapted it. Last Sunday was Christmas. And some of you left church and you went home and you had a feast and you had turkey and ham and casseroles and pies and all sorts of good stuff. And when you were finished eating, maybe you went and laid down on the couch because you felt like you had gained 15 pounds. You were stuffed. Now, I'm going to assume everyone's been there at least once in their life. If I were to come to you with a big plate of the best food in the world and put it in front of you and say, would you like some of this? while you're laying on the couch stuffed full of food? You would say, no, I don't. I don't want anything to do. Get that away from me. Bring that back next week. I don't want any of that. My desire has been fully satisfied. And now I have no appetite for food. A heart that is fully satisfied with the person of Christ has no room and no appetite for the things of the world. As the hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Get your eyes off your desires and on to the person and the work of Christ. Dwell on, meditate on the things that Christ has done. Third thing you can do, consider the consequence of sin. Consider the consequence of sin. This brings us to our fifth and our final step in the process of sinning. 
Quick review. You are tempted by your desire. You are deceived by your desire. You plan to satisfy your desire. You act sinfully. Fifth step, you die. Look at James 1, verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. When sin is fully matured, when the child grows up, when it reaches its fullness of what it's supposed to be, its end is death. You know, our, our desires lie to us and tell us, you know, sin is good. This will be good for you. You'll enjoy this. This will satisfy you. This will give you everything that you want. You can't live a great life until you satisfy this desire. That's what your heart tells you. That this sin will bring joy, peace, happiness, comfort. And James responds, no, sin brings death. Adam and Eve were told if they disobeyed God, they would die. And that was certainly true because they eventually did physically die. Everyone in this room will physically die unless the Lord comes back before. We will all die, and we will all die because of sin. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. You will die because of sin. Death, physical death is when your soul separates from your body. This also includes immediate spiritual death. Immediate spiritual death is when God separates from the sinner. And you are cut off from the life and the community of God. If you don't know Christ this morning, you are spiritually dead. If he has not given you new life, you are spiritually dead. You are cut off from the life of God. You are without hope in the world. Because of your sin. Even as a believer, and the believers in the room, you'll know this, sin disrupts your fellowship with God. When you sin, do you want to go pray immediately? Or do you have reservations about it? When you sin, do you love reading the word? Sin will affect your relationship with God. It will separate you from God. It won't separate you eternally because you're a believer. But it will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your peace. It will rob you of your comfort, your satisfaction. Why? Because God disciplines his children. And if you don't know anything about that, you're not one of his children. If you can run headlong into sin and it doesn't hurt and you don't feel it, and the only time you're upset about sin is when it has consequences in the world, you are not a believer. God disciplines his children by removing your joy and your peace and your comfort. Sin brings spiritual death. But James is ultimately pointing to another form of death. It's not physical death. It's not spiritual death. It's eternal death. A life of continual ongoing sin, which is the state of every person outside of Christ, a life chasing after your sinful desires will result in eternal death. This is not what is called annihilationism, where you just kind of vanish and you cease to exist. This is what the book of Revelation calls the second death. It's being cast into a lake of fire where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. If you want to stay away from sin, sin, just dwell on that for a few minutes. He gives us the image of a lake of fire. Imagine standing in a bonfire for 10 minutes and not dying. Now, imagine you woke up tomorrow morning and you had died, 
and that's where you were. You were in the lake of fire where you will not die, where there is no hope of rescue. There is no chance for pardon. No judge is going to come and commute your sentence. No president is going to pardon you. There is no reprieve. Your sentence will never be shortened for good behavior. It is an eternal punishment. You wake up, you open your eyes, you're in the flame, you're in severe torment. And then you have this one thought. I'm never going to get out of this. There is no end to this. This won't end in 10 years, 100 years, 500 years, 10 billion years. In 200 billion years, I will still be here. I will suffer here for an eternity. Because in my life, I wanted a few fleeting moments of pleasure with sin. If that won't keep you away from sin, I don't know what will. And if you're not a believer this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in him, if you're still looking to your works and your ability to be righteous and holy, you are headed for the second death. Jesus Christ is your only hope. And when I say that, what I mean by that is you have to give up on everything else. You have to realize everything else is worthless. That nothing else will save you. Nothing else will keep you from going there. Because you've already committed so many sins that you deserve it, and so have I. He is your only hope. And you need to call on Him right now and beg Him to save you. And if you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ, examine your heart. Is your heart dominated and controlled by sinful desires? Do you sit here and make plans to satisfy those desires? Do you lie in your bed at night planning and devising evil? And if you do, you need to repent today. Well, I've tried and it doesn't work. I'm struggling. Okay. Come get some help. Come get some biblical counseling. Biblical counseling won't cost you a penny. Continuing in sin will cost you everything. It'll cost you your soul. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Let 2023 be the year you deal with your sin at the heart level. And if you need some help, we would love to help you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you know the condition, the status of all of our hearts. You know the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all else. And you know the heart of every single person in this room. You know every sinful thought, every sinful desire. You know every time we've desired something that you hate, and we know that outside of Christ, there is nothing we can do about it. And so, Father, we ask that you would help each one of us this year to be more holy, to deal with our hearts, that we would be holy not just in our external behavior, but that we would be holy in our heart, that we would put aside our sinful desires, that we would focus our hearts and our minds on Christ, that we would find our satisfaction, our joy, and our comfort in Christ and not in the world,
not in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Father, we do ask that for those in the room that are not believers, maybe they're deceived and they think they're believers. We ask that you would open their eyes, that you would give them spiritual life, that they would turn from their sin, that they would run to Christ empty-handed and beg Christ, and that Christ would show himself as he is, as a merciful and compassionate Savior, and that you would bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.